So the reading is taken from Philippians 4, and that can be found on page 1180 in the Church Bibles. That's Philippians 4, verses 4 to 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learnt or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. as a bat. Sorry. Let's pray. Father, we ask you that your Holy Spirit will open your word and your will to us now and bear fruit, including your joy and peace now and tomorrow and the next day. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I've just got a few clues to the title, which is Ways to Joy and Peace. Um, like Paul, I don't believe that I have attained all these things. Glimpses are what um, I'm talking about today, really. What, what is joy? Absence of sorrow? No, don't think so. Jesus is described as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief in Isaiah 53. And he spoke of joy, and it's the joy of the Lord that we've been thinking about. So joy isn't just the absence of sorrow. Is it the delights of the heart? No, sorry. Solomon this time, he spends some time in Ecclesiastes 1, 2, and 3 saying that he has absolutely dedicated himself to fulfilling the delights of the heart and finds them empty. So it's not that. Is it excitement? Is it a game show where there's this tremendous excitement and um, speed up music and, and, and um, frantic energy and you all end up clapping yourselves? It's a bit hollow. Is it what I really want? Well, when Wales have won the World Cup in um, November, 
in four years' time, we'll have to do it again. But I did have a dream while I was thinking about this, and in that dream, um, I saw and experienced a lot of strange and different pleasures. And it was absolutely exhausting. I felt absolutely kippered at the end, I couldn't sleep. So that wasn't real joy either, even though I was asleep and it was a dream. I think it was one of those from the Lord. Joy, or perhaps it's when the most wonderful woman in the world looks as if she might not turn you down. Or perhaps it's when the most wonderful savior in the world asks you to come down out of the tree and have dinner with him. Or perhaps it's when you're going through torment like the terrorist next to Jesus on the cross who says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom and receives a promise. It's greater than a feeling. Today, this day, you will be with me in paradise. Now that's a promise worth hearing when things are difficult but it looks as if there may be some lack of absolute happiness on the way maybe, something to be endured to the end. I looked up Cruden, the encyclopedia, no, the concordance, find out what he says about joy, and he's got about five or six different definitions. Um, I'm gonna spare you those, but one of them was about joy in Israel when the mighty men came together with David. There was food and there was drink and there was a common purpose to make David king over Israel. He'd been king over Judah, but make him king over Israel, 1 Chronicles 12, 40. And there's this description of joy in Israel because not so much of the food and the drink and the fighting, but the common purpose. And Psalm 133 says that um, what pleasant thing it is when brothers live in unity and talks about that being like precious anointing oil. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. So I think joy, probably a little bit more than some of the things that we've mentioned so far. And Keith facing that news and able to experience God's joy is really quite something in these circumstances. Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Job done, sat down, finished, once and for all, done fix our eyes on, on Jesus. That might be a way to joy. So I thought about that and looked in John 16. And he talks about joy. He says, I'm going away, but I'll see you again, and your sorrow will be turned to joy. You will rejoice, and no one will take, your, will take away your joy. John 16, 22. No one will take away your joy. This is in seeing Jesus again after his passion, after his crucifixion, resurrection. 
seeing him again. So joy's got something to do with the relationship with Jesus. Something to do with some other things too. In um, Isaiah 9, there's the promise of a child to be born, the promise of Emmanuel, the Messiah. And it says, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. That joy has got something to do with an expectation of God fulfilling prophecy, God fulfilling his promise, like the promise to the terrorist next to him on the cross. A killer. No better than uh, Moses or, or David uh, or, or Paul or, or me. But no worse either. A sinner. And Psalm 16, a messianic psalm talking about Jesus um, and God not allowing his Holy One to see corruption, talking about um, resurrection, says, you fill me with joy in your presence. Where in the authorized version, in my Father's presence, there is fullness of joy. So it's a bit more than some of those things um, that we thought about. It's a bit deeper. What are the ways to joy? C.S. Lewis has a, a picture of a chap on top of a mountain who rather wants his tea. He's climbed the mountain. He wants to go down to the tea shop, which he can see below him. He's on top of the cliff, and the tea is in the, 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 the cottage down there. But he can't jump off the cliff. So he has to go down by a circuitous route. Sometimes he's even further away from the tea. But actually, nearness by approach. He's getting nearer the tea as he goes on his journey. He's getting nearer to God as he goes through the journey. It isn't just jumping off the cliff every time and saying, aha, here we are, let's be with God immediately um, and have all the excitement. Sometimes there's the journey, sometimes um, there's the experience. Perhaps that's a little of the situation um, that we had in James. Is it just a feeling? No, it's got something to do with the mind as well. Count it all joy. Count it all joy. Consider it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of every kind. I can't do any better than Adrian Platz, can I? But I certainly can't do any better than James 1. Christians in Iraq, Iran, Syria, Egypt, Nigeria, Korea, anywhere else you think of where there's persecution, are facing trials. Christians are facing trials in their bodies of pain and suffering and expectation of miserable things. As Keith told us earlier, Christians are facing other difficulties of bereavements and uh, broken relationships. Christians experience these things. But we can't just be overcome by our emotions, can we? We have to consider what God said, what the Word says. We have to consider His promises and hold on to them. Count it joy. Perhaps it's shorthand for seeking the Lord. Is it something to do with accomplishing a mission, accomplishing something that God's told you to do? Might be. In Matthew 25, uh, 21, the servant who has invested the talent that God has given him, the servant who has fulfilled the mission that uh, Jesus set before him, hears these wonderful words, well done, you good and faithful servant, wait for it, enter now into the joy of your Lord. And here is Paul writing to the Philippians. On his way on that missionary journey, before he crossed over 
to Macedonia, where uh, Philippi is, he had um, some difficulties. He had a conversion experience, and God talks to Ananias, the chap who goes and lays hands on him in that. Uh, Ananias is very scared, very scared about going to see Paul, thinks Paul's probably going to kill him. And he hears God say this, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I'll show him how much he must suffer for my sake. And on his way, on that journey, he wants, he thinks God is telling him to go to a particular place, Asia, and he thinks he's telling him to go to Bithynia, but it says this, it says in Acts 16, we were kept, Luke's there, so it's we, we were kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When we came to Bithynia, the Spirit of Jesus would not allow us to enter. We tried to enter, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow us to enter. And then he had a vision and a dream of the man from Macedonia saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And he gets in the boat and he goes over and he goes to Philippi. And when he gets there, this is how he describes it in 2 Corinthians. He says, when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest for the body. We were harassed on every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. And then he talks about his relationship with the Corinthians, he talks about his relationship with Titus, who's encouraged him, and the prayer and the love and support that he's received from the Corinthians and Titus. And then he says, so my joy was greater than ever. Harassed on every side, Conflicts on the outside, fears within, but my joy was greater than ever. It's not the absence of these things, is it? God wants to be with us in these things, and he wants us to share fellowship with each other in these things. John 17, Jesus is praying for the disciples, and then he goes on to pray for us, not just the disciples, but those who hear as a result of their words, us. And he prays about them. And he doesn't pray, take them out of the world. He prays for their protection and their sanctification. He says, don't take them out of the world. Protect them from the evil one. And he asks God to sanctify, make holy, make more like Jesus. By a word, a word is truth. And he's praying those things. And then he tells you, in that same passage, why he's praying those things. He says, I'm praying those things, these things, so that the disciples, and this is the words of, of Jesus, may have the full measure of my joy within them. Jesus is on the way to betrayal, trial, crucifixion, death. And he talks about the disciples having the full measure of my joy within them. So he is a man of sorrows. He is acquainted with grief. But he has the joy of God. And he wants to share that. Paul talks about the word and talks, says that we must read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it. So mind. And this is the bit that does the digesting somewhere down here. It's usually translated heart. A bit deeper than that. Not just feelings, digesting, taking it in. 
So, ooh. That's what I was going to say to you until over the weekend when I think there's something else that I'm supposed to be saying. There are some ways, those are some ways, but there are, there are um, at the beginning of the chapter four, there's this business about Yodia and Sintichi and the deep desire that Paul has that they should agree. I mean, these are not two bickering women who are, you know, difficult. Perish the thought. These are two yoke fellows who've been contending with Paul, not arguing with him, but arguing together with him to present the gospel. That's what it says. Contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with other people. These are, these are big girls, aren't they? They are girls, women, who are presenting the gospel in their town. They're not grumpers sitting at the back having a you know, bit of a grumble. But they don't agree in the Lord, and that's terrible. Because Jesus talks about the unity that he wants the church to have. Um, in those passages in, in John uh, 15, 16, 17, he talks about that they may be one, you and me and, and me and them, that they may be one and that the world may know that you've loved me. So this, this, this is one of the things which, it's a dead end when it comes to seeking the ways to join peace, a lack of, of unity. Anyway, what are these dead ends off the road to wait to joy and peace, the things that the Lord had said to me over the weekend is two things really. One is um, unforgiveness. This is something which destroys joy and peace, unforgiveness. I was told a story of a, the father of a, a friend who came to see us, and she was explaining that he was very near death, and um, there was something difficult that was causing a difficulty for him. And he'd been a very strong, fierce, conservative evangelical Christian for many, many years. And God spoke to the friend, the daughter, and she spoke to her father in the last 20 minutes of his life and asked if there was something that he hadn't been forgiven for, something that he hadn't confessed. She knew what it was. God had told her what it was. I'm not going to tell you that, but he said, yes, that's right. And as a result of that, he accepted God's forgiveness for that thing which had been spoiling him for decades. So something that we've held back and that we haven't brought before the Lord in confession to receive forgiveness can be something which destroys our joy. Now, I have no idea whether this applies to anybody here or not, but I'm going to say it because I think that God has told me to. But it, you've got to do something about it. There's, um, there are two things, really. One is the good bit, which is in 1 John. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us, our sins, and purify us 
from all unrighteousness. If anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sin. More familiar, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sin if you're over 59 and a half. But the not quite so cheerful bit is it in Matthew 6. We know the context. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. This, this version says this. It says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. For, oh, there's a bit more. For, if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, I don't understand that, and it's not to alarm anybody, but it does seem important that we should not just seek forgiveness, but that we should forgive. So, if I have failed to forgive my brother, or somebody something from the past, that is something which can destroy my joy and peace. It may upset his joy and peace as well, but for the purposes of today, that's something which can destroy my joy and peace. If I have failed, as I desire forgiveness, to forgive. So please, ask God if any of this applies to you. If it does, ask him what it is. And then please find a quiet place and talk to him before you go down to coffee, because when you go down to coffee, someone will say, how are you? And you'll say, fine. How are you? Please, if there's something, choose to confess. Don't invent something. Don't produce something that you've already confessed and been forgiven for 27 times because you've done it for years. But if there is something that remains, choose to confess. And if there's something that you need to forgive, choose to forgive. Because Jesus goes on in just after Matthew 6, and he talks about judgment. He talks about if you're over 59 and a half, moat and beam. If you're under that, it's uh, speck and plank. The thing in your eye which makes it harder for you to remove the small thing, the speck. The plank in your eye makes it harder for you to remove the speck from somebody else's eye. We're quite keen on um, sometimes the specks in other people's eyes. So what does Paul actually say uh, in Philippians 4? Starts with pleading with these two ladies to agree in the Lord. What he doesn't do is to listen to one of the ladies and then go and harangue the other one. He doesn't act on a quarter of the information. He doesn't uh, listen to other people talking about what their problem might be and gets about a quarter of it and that second and third hand and unreliable. He pleads with them personally, each of them, to be reconciled. And if there is anything that needs to be reconciled, there it is. He's writing to the Philippians. And he's talking uh, to Clement and the rest of the fellow workers and he's asking them to help these ladies. 
And then he tells us to rejoice always. Then he gives us some other 